0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly O'Horro. and this is Adaptable Behavior Explained. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your time, and I'm especially excited for this episode of Counselor Cafe. I have a friend and colleague with me today, Barry Litt, and he's going to talk about relationships and attachment and all sorts of other cool things that are really relevant to all of you. And um, so I'm just excited to have him here. He's out of New Hampshire and we're really lucky to have him here on our show today. So Barry, please introduce yourself and thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thanks Kelly for having me. It's a real treat. It's a real treat to be with you. Uh, So I'm trained as a marriage and family therapist. I've been in the field for about 40 years now, half of which is with um, doing EMDR. And now I'm an EMDR uh, consultant. And my early training in uh, object relations and family systems has been a very, very uh, helpful marriage with the adaptive information processing model of EMDR. EMDR. And I've been able to can integrate I, Can those I in. chime
0: in for just a quick second there? For those of you who haven't watched earlier episodes, adaptive information processing is really just the theory by which we all grow and develop. We are learning creatures and mammals. And so everything we ever did, we learned, whether it was epigenetically or now uh, in our environments. And so so that's what Barry's an expert in. And I'm excited to hear how he marries these topics together.
1: OK, well, thanks for that that clarification. Right. That's that's sort of the driving engine of EMDR, is, is what makes people process through emotional traumas, uh, we say from the bottom up, emotionally right. Uh, right. and somatically. Um, so I've been able to take my, my learning and evolution over the years uh, into three different chapters and three different books and, and workshops and trainings all throughout the U.S. and Canada. Um and that's what I'll be doing in San Diego in May. And so that's, you know, an exciting next yeah. adventure for and me. For those, and for those for
0: those therapists watching, uh, if you haven't seen Barry present, it's not to be missed. He's dynamic <laughs> and, and so charismatic and and really relatable. And so it's so fun. So thank you so much for that. And um I'm, I'm excited to dive right in. So I'm gonna give a little background on why this topic is so important for all people, not just therapists. Uh, We are we are just hardwired to be reactive to our environments and it's how we're wired and built. And so everything in our environment stimulates memory. And sometimes that memory recalled is good and doesn't have any problematic behavior associated with it. And sometimes the memory is maladaptively encoded. In other words, we end up triggered as if something uh, that we're seeing, tasting, feeling, touching, smelling today. Uh, it reminds us of something that happened in the past that was negatively stored. And so those are called triggers or reminders in our nervous system. And I want to make sure we talk about that because I want my next question for Barry to have a little bit of, uh, a a preamble so that those who don't know what that is, uh, you have that background. So Barry, knowing that we all as humans get triggered, knowing that we don't want to, and we judge our reactions and oftentimes those triggers really interrupt or, uh, create problems in our relationships because we are getting our stuff on others when it's not necessarily their, their problem to deal with. So in all your years of experience, both clinically and in consultation, how do you understand why people react poorly to stimulus or why they get triggered from a zoomed out place?
1: Right, right. Great question. So to be sure, you know, you you mentioned the role of memory and the role of memory in humans is to predict, so we know where the next watering hole is. So we know where the, the lion's den is. It's to anticipate problems. After all, we did evolve in a predator prey environment. So safety is, you know, uh, of chief importance, certainly in the way we evolved, even though in the modern society, it, it may take a backseat to other concerns. But that's not what our nervous system thinks. Our nervous system is always kind of on the lookout. And so while trauma can affect different people differently, and we can't really predict who's going to be traumatized by what. And and that's because it's a subjective reaction to an event as opposed to the event itself. But we do know is that the way people react can be sort of clustered or understood as is generally speaking, for the most part, going to land in one or more of three domains of self-experience or dose, domains of self-experience. This is threats to the continuity of my sense of self in the world. And I can mention what those three are and then and then kind of circle back and, and say a little bit yeah, about Yeah,
0: please me. do. And when you say domains of self or identity, can you give an example of what that would look like? Or will you do that when you explain those three domains?
1: I will, yes. Okay. Uh, okay, so, something bad happens, it's going to hit me in one of these, one or more of these three domains. They include attachment, merit, and safety. So the attachment domain, this is typically trauma within the first three years of life. Um, Research shows that about 40% of individuals have an insecure attachment style. That means that there was some more or less Uh, fracture of their attachment relationship with the primary caregiver. So that's going to be a persistent feature of their sense of not only self, but self in relation to other. The next domain is what I call the merit domain. This is concerns with self-worth, self-esteem, and so forth. So while in the first group, it affects you know, roughly 40% of the population, nobody gets through the merit domain unscathed. We are wired to doubt ourselves and to compare ourselves to others often. So the merit domain really can involves everybody, and that's about feeling not good enough or a failure or not this enough or not that enough. And then finally, the safety domain. Uh, this is the sense of the world as generally a safe place gets fractured by some event that you know, at least I perceive as a threat to my my safety or vitality, a life-threatening event. And so this is for those who have, you know, experienced life-threatening events, combat trauma, motor vehicle accidents, um, or things that created that fight flight or freeze response that says, "I'm gonna die." So right. anything that occurs, is going to land in one or more uh, of those three domains.
0: Right. And I think that for our viewers, you know, nobody questions those safety domain oriented injuries. People don't argue about, you know, combat threat or car accidents or explosions or tsunamis. And nobody judges the reactivity in a human when there's a safety violation of self. uh, and, And that looks and tastes or reacts in the world in a way that isn't suitable for the now, you know, if there's a soldier back from combat, and Mm. he drops to the floor, when he hears a balloon pop at a party, people might go, Oh, but they don't judge him because it makes sense that that's how he learned to survive. And that one becomes so very obvious, right. you know, where I think I want to really zoom in a little bit more. And I know that both merit and attachment systems are, are incredibly important and will impact relationships. I think right. that, that the topic that doesn't seem to get on people's radars in an obvious way are those zero to three memories that really grossly affect the attachment system. And I think part of that is because we don't have a lot of explicit memory tied to those things. And we're not taught to associate those experiences as children that, well, you know what, if my dad works out of town six of seven days a week, I'm not going to feel like I'm safe in the world uh, related to his connection and and love for me. And it must be something wrong with me that he leaves me all the time. And people don't understand how that so greatly impacts how we believe in ourselves in relationship.
1: Yeah, that's very true. That's a really good point. Yeah. in point of fact, uh, for the most part, we don't form uh, explicit memories in the first three years. So all the the remembering is not conscious remembering. It's implicit remembering.
0: And say more about that. Implicit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So implicit memory is the stuff you learn you don't realize you're learning. Like, you know, how do you put your pants on? Like nobody taught you that. It wasn't the way you learned, you know, like the, the capital of Brazil. It was something you experienced and encoded without even knowing it was going on how do you open a doorknob these are things that we do all the time implicitly that is without conscious thought and how we relate what we expect of caregivers what we expect in terms of you know how safe i'm going to be with a caregiver will i be um, understood seen comforted by a caregiver there's no language for this in the first few years these are you know pre-verbal years for the most part but it's experienced and that experience is encoded, and so my system, my attachment system, is striving to figure out a, a hand and glove fit with my primary caregiver. Right. This system and, will uh, persist. Go ahead. Right.
0: Oh no, I, I was just going to say, and I think that what people don't understand is how incredibly important those first three years are to for the for the individual to develop in a sense of I'm worthy. I matter, I'm lovable, I belong. All of those end up so deeply learned without learning, without, without someone teaching us. And so we decide who we are in relationship to our value for others. And and when that's done poorly, there's so much shame associated with that presenting issue. And so when we have a lot of shame that we have to overcome, oftentimes I think of that as a little bit of a of a a red flag for me as a therapist. There's probably some really early developmental attachment wounding we have to look at when shame is just at the forefront of presenting issues. Would you would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I would. Now, shame can certainly be um, associated with um, trauma in the merit domain. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure uh, and I feel embarrassed or shamed. But to be sure, shame and fear are are sort of the, the companion emotions of attachment trauma. And sometimes it can be, you know, quite, uh, you know, self-evident, like, oh, I can't stand to be alone. You know, if I'm alone, uh, then I, I'm fearful and, and I'm not comfortable. And yet my friends and neighbors are, have no problem. Um, but a lot of times it's not quite so clear. It could be that I'm fine when I'm by myself. It could be that when I have a partner who doesn't pay attention to me or ignores me or gives me, you know, the the stone face, you know, well, oh, that that might be very triggering. So for some folks being. because I don't know where I stand.
0: I don't know where I stand with them if their face yeah. doesn't give me some information that says I see you. I feel you. You matter. And right. they have, you know, they lost their car keys. And so they have a scowl and yeah. the person thinks, uh, what's wrong? What did I do? Why? Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you know, we're always reading each other. And again, implicitly, unconsciously, some of that becomes conscious, like, oh, I noticed that you have a scowl, but unconsciously, my mirror neurons, my monkey see, monkey do neurons are, are looking to you as a a mirror. And it's as if, you know, we're playing mirror, mirror on the wall all the time. And I look in the mirror and I don't see a reflection coming back. And that's a freaky outy thing. Right. And, and now I'm going to make some attributions. You don't love me anymore. You don't want me anymore. I've done something horrible. I'm alone. I'm abandoned. And now I'm back to this horrible place that I would have experienced probably countless times as, as, a, as an infant, as a toddler.
0: Right. And of course, not in memory, but in, in somatic memory. This is so That's familiar right. and I don't understand why.
1: Right, I don't understand why now. There's an attribution process that that takes place. I'm, I'm going to feel very bad, but it happened when you gave me that stonewalling, nothing face.
0: Therefore, so your face you, is is the problem. You're the problem. your face. You're the problem. Your face is yeah. the problem. That expression you gave me. It's it's the responsibility of why I feel the way I feel.
1: Bingo. Yes. So you know in in one of the virtues of the the model of understanding that these are triggers that that people carry is if i'm activated like that my natural inclination is to point the finger you know and attribute it to something you're doing or not doing there's this old adage you know if i if i point the finger at you i got three pointing back at me right and and that's useful in terms of stepping back and saying okay what am i going through i'm really activated what does that mean I'm I'm really emotional. I'm fearful. I feel shame. Hmm. I mean, I want to say it's your fault. But, you know, knowing myself, this is I'm alone. I don't matter. I'm not enough. This is a me thing. This is my attachment trauma. Right. Uh, It's not a character flaw. You know, it's 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 just a, a part of my early wiring
0: exactly and getting some knowledge about our own histories really can help us start to connect those dots so so yeah. how do you understand the critical components of of the attachment relationship in the therapeutic setting you know as far as healing our wounds as people come in and see us
1: right right good question so when people see a therapist you know it's a vulnerable relationship it's an intimate relationship and so people are going to transfer that attachment style onto the therapist. That's what we call the word transference. And for that matter, the therapist is a human, too. And the therapist is going to transfer you know, my own attachment style into that relationship. And we call that counter the same phenomena. We had counter and we're talking about the therapist, but it's the same thing. So the attuned therapists and therapists you know the old adage know thyself very important i can use my reactions to the client i can study my client's ability to to be open or to be candid or they're variously guarded uh, as tools to understand what their attachment system is doing how it's playing out in the therapy and they're reporting from the client In addition to my observation, can help me understand how this attachment is playing out in their actual lives. Um, Right. And what happens
0: in our office is likely what's happening outside of our office.
1: Yes. Yes. So it's great
0: data.
1: Although, yes, in a much more minimized form, generally speaking, because people are on their best behavior, right? Um, And the therapist, you know, is a a secure attachment figure, you know, where, we're trained and disciplined to be non-reactive. Um, the whole uh, structure of therapy is that um, I don't rely on my clients to, you know, parent the child, child or earn income or you know share tasks. So by design, the therapeutic relationship is is kind of this very uh, distilled uh, petri dish to, to to see this play out in a safe way that allows you know for intervention,
0: right and And talk a little bit about how the attachment relationships that people experience, and of course their their wounds related to those three domains show up in the office and and how we we have to navigate that space
1: right, right well uh to be sure uh there are you know different styles of attachment and I recommend anybody who's not familiar or um you know, wants to brush up on to look at your uh, video, Kelly, on attachment styles. It's it's, it's very nice. It's very clear. It's very well done, and it delineates you know what these styles are, and can give us insights into how they might play out. Um, the attachment of of uh, an individual, their style, is a persistent feature. Um, it tends to go throughout the lifespan, and it will modify according to development, but the fundamental of it will, will persist. So it'll show up in the therapy relationship. It'll throw up, show up in intimate partners or at work or anybody who's in that more or less close area.
0: Yeah. And that attachment relationship, uh, that was developed when we were young, that of course, like you said, it shows up everywhere all the time. And without our knowing typically about how we show up in the world and it affects uh, the way that we are in relationship everywhere we are. That's absolutely
1: right. Yeah. Now, these attachment styles that, again, you did a very lovely job of of describing need to be understood as a scalar phenomena as opposed to, you know, I either have this or I don't have this. It's like, to what extent do I have this style more or less? And the more there's attachment trauma, the more it will be felt by intimate others, including the therapist. So a client presentation, for example, when the, the presenting problems are things about like, I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like I matter. People, you know, who are close to me don't really know me or care about me. They don't include me. I feel alone. These are indicators in in the EMDR speak. We talk about negative cognitions, core beliefs that are persistent. These are going to show up sooner or later in uh, on the client presentation. But the therapist is also may come to consultation and say, you know, I'm not sure what to do with my client. I don't feel like I'm providing the right service. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I feel like I don't have what it takes. Um, I get nervous when they enter because I feel like whatever it is, you know, they're they're too much for me. Well, those are the complementary attitudes. So you see, what I'm doing is I'm reverberating with that same sentiment, almost as if telepathically You know, I'm feeling their attachment system. So I'm actually getting data about their early life, even if we're talking about, you know, their time at work. So the therapist can utilize this uh, and and it's hard and it's challenging. But with consultation, it can be very helpful to utilize this to feed it back in a corrective way in in the therapy.
0: Right. And we're creating new memory moment by moment in the therapeutic setting that can help reestablish, I can, you know, I can show up a certain kind of way if I'm a client and the therapist can then mirror back a more appropriate stance based on that experience and create new pathways and uh, and help make make known, make what was implicit explicit in that experience well so that they yes. have. Uh, awareness of those past present connections because we bring to light what's happening in that. And of course, what it's happened, what's happening in their relationships which which, you know, better than I do. That's what brings people into therapy. Most of the time is, you know, my partner, my husband, my child, my whatever. And I dot, dot, dot. And they dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right. And that partner, child, you know, uh, husband, spouse, whatever may in fact do dot, dot, dot. Right. But the real issue is how does it affect me? And am I being triggered? And so my triggers are my problem to solve. Right. This is a good news, bad news situation for, for people, for clients. The, the bad news is that these attachment styles are very persistent. That is the nature of being human to attribute it to outside sources. It's, it's what the other person did. It's what the situation is. It's the world is coming apart. That's why I feel this way. Um, and so there's often a tug of war with partners or with the therapist about, well, no, it's, it, it's not, I'm doing something wrong. It's my partner. It's not, I'm reacting. Anybody would feel this way. So there has to be sort of a, a battle about, um, attribution to what do I attribute this? Um, I'm not going to change how the world is or is not coming right. apart. i don't and have I'm any not control gonna control over that. no. But the good news part is that I can come into mastery over what my nervous system is doing with these things. Uh, and that's where bottom-up therapy like EMDR really comes into play. My reactions are from the emotional brain. I'm not going to talk myself out of these things. I can try, but I'll probably just wind up beating myself up uh, because I'm using the wrong tool you know, for the wrong problem. Um, the intellectual part of my brain is really not the driver. It's the emotional part and the somatic part. So a bottom, so-called bottom-up therapy is about transforming what my nervous system is doing with these various triggers so that now I can rise above my reactivity and then find a skillful, compassionate way of dealing with these things.
0: Right. That better matches today's circumstances and slows my system down enough so that I have time for choice because that reactivity is is just... It's without choice because it's so somatically informed and it's too fast. And that's because by design, by, you know, the brain's designed to go that fast on purpose to keep us safe, alive and well. And exactly. so when it's obsolete, when it's an obsolete reaction, that slowing down helps us have a response, which is so much better serving for our relationships in the now. And, of course, can better match our, our circumstances of the now. So we yes, reduce that said. encoding. So right. what, what are the known implications for you? What, what are the implications of this known quantity when it comes to how do we as humans need to take account for knowing this?
1: Right, right. So I mentioned the the, the challenge of attributional process that I, I have a natural tendency to want to say it's someone else's fault. The adaptation of this attachment style may have had a very important <clears throat> role when I was you know a youngster, but as a grown-up, I'm going to have a tendency to continue to to play this out, even if it's obsolete.
0: Can you give an example of something we might have done as a child that was serving and necessary, but then when we do it in our partner relationships, how it's problematic?
1: Oh, sure. That's a great question. And, And again, I'll just reference, you know, your own video on attachment styles. So the dismissive avoidant attachment style of adulthood comes from an early childhood where caregivers are unreliable, unsafe, or unsoothing. And there could be a thousand reasons for that. It it could be anything from the primary caregiver, usually the mom, you know, was sick, was anxious, was depressed, you know, was being beaten up, you know, that she's ill, that she's absent. I mean, the the list really goes on. It doesn't have to be a a bad guy. But it means as as an early toddler infant, when I seek safety and the caregiver is not the Thing that provides safety, I may turn inward. I may turn to toys. I may turn into to rituals. I may play by myself, and so very early on, I take my which just aimed like like beaming outward, and instead I I curtail it and I beam it inward to take care of myself. Um, children who are doing this are often dissociative. They actually have uh, anesthesia going on, though so they don't feel so much distress. So they look, they could look. Fairly content, um, but, but their distress is is out of awareness, dissociated. Well, that's suitable for that early childhood environment, but you know, try to run an intimate adult relationship that way. So when my partner makes a bid for attention, affection, attunement, it does not compute, uh, and I might shut down. I might have that anesthesia happen again, that dissociation. I might turn away. Uh, The stonewalling I referenced earlier, you know, if my partner's upset with me and my partner is is engaging in conflict, which is often just a bid for more engagement, I may shut down and dissociate and blank out. I don't know what to do
0: with that. It's so unfamiliar because I couldn't get the attention of my caregivers when I was young. And so I don't know what to do with this now.
1: Exactly. And it might overwhelm me. but, But that won't be my attribution, however. My attribution will be. Oh, well, my partner's too needy. My partner's too demanding. My partner just wants to fight. I don't like fighting. I'm a peaceful person. I don't see the need for all this emotionality. So, you know, often people will invent a story.
0: We're we're wired for a story. We figure it out and we want to say, here's here's what's happening and this is why. Exactly. (laughs) This is why I feel this way.
1: Right. So, you know, that couple may wind up very likely triggering each other's Uh, injuries. So, you know, I'm triggered in that, you know, the, the, in the, in the attachment domain of self because my partner is, is demanding relational engagement that is overwhelming to me. And my shutting down may trigger my partner's attachment insecurity, you see. And then we're often running.
0: Right. And so what so often happens,
1: that's right. (laughs) And so what often happens is, is each of us sees the problem as the other one. And we attribute the solution as, you know, belonging to the partner or belonging to, you know, if my father only told me he was proud of me, that would be like a merit domain type of thing. Then I would feel good about myself. If if my children excelled in school, then I would feel successful. That's a merit domain thing. Mm -hmm. Um, If my partner, you know, engaged with me more intimately, then I wouldn't feel so alone. That's an attachment thing. So we tend to get into this battle of well, you need to to change so I feel better. And my partner counters well, no, no, you need to change so I feel better. Yes, but I feel worse than you do because yeah. because you did this terrible thing. Right. Well, no, 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 I feel worse than you. You owe it to me because last week you did two terrible things. Right. Yes, but I had I had a bad childhood. Out. Yeah. Uh, well, you had a bad childhood. I had no childhood. I was raised by wolves. You know, I, I I got fed by, you know, raccoons taught me how to open trash cans. That's the kind of childhood I, you owe it to me. Right. So, and so what I call a race to the bottom, you know, exactly. that that suffering is associated with entitlement. And if I suffer more, I'm entitled to have caregiving. Right. Uh, and so couples often partners collide in terms of. Who is entitled to be caring for whom? Right. You know, each of us want to be me, me, me.
0: And in in service of the discharge of our own pain and discomfort, we fall into the blame game. That's it. And the projection game. That's right. And it's easier than feeling my responsibility to clean up my reactivity on my side of the street
1: absolutely and also
0: i don't think you know i i don't believe that people know they're doing it for the most part no. i think people are not doing this by choice i think they're doing this by not because they've not known any other way and they don't that's understand right. how to attribute their emotional experience to something that isn't happening right now they just don't know right. we should learn this when we're young and of course that's not that's that's not what happens for us so right. you know i think the the bullet point here is we have to clean up our side of the street in relationships and we can control our reactivity and we can become masters of our own nervous system with putting in the work for sure.
1: Yes, well said. Very well said. So
0: so when thinking about the healing journey, what do you think is the primary pitfall that you see, whether coming from the client perspective or the therapist's perspective?
1: Yeah. So I'll I'll circle back to the attributional process. So so often, for example, when when couples in particular, but individuals as well, come to, to therapy, often they're looking for a relational solution to an intrapsychic or psychological problem. If my partner would do more of this and less of that, I would feel safe. I would feel secure. I would feel like I'm good enough. If my, uh, I, I just had somebody the other week, you know, I like it when my partner says, you know, you're pretty. Well, that You know, that sounds very benign and isn't that a nice thing? But the problem is, what if my partner doesn't think I'm pretty? I mean, it's, it's really possible that I'm, I'm not that pretty to my partner. I mean, that's just a reality or that I'm not good at something or that they don't like my souffle. I mean, it's got to be fair game that my partner can be honest with me. And I need to have the resilience to, to, to bend like willow and not break like glass. Uh, But if you see I'm really traumatized, let's say, in the merit domain and my partner says, you know, doesn't say I'm pretty or I don't look good in this or my souffle is is burnt. And I feel it's a traumatic injury. Again, my go to is to say, well, you see, this is this is you. You're too critical. You're not nice enough. You're not kind enough. This is really a, a me problem. And as I said before, I might have to go several rounds with my therapist before I can accept that this is a trigger <laughs> right. in me.
0: Right. One of my, one of my common statements to clients is I, I get, they did all those things and that totally sucks for you. And they're not in here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. So since
0: they're not here, would you be okay learning how to tolerate and, or show up for yourself in a different way than you currently do?
1: Yes. Absolutely. And if so,
0: Let's do that because they're here. I can't control anything they're doing. And furthermore, we can't ever control anything anyone else ever does. And so, our most primary ability would be in changing the way that we respond to people's reactions or statements or stimulus in the world. And that's like where we become the most empowered.
1: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, can I share a little tip that sometimes I I find augments that please that process so. It's a it's a an exercise that I I I call the convincer and it's it's based on a very bad psychological phenomena that we really do not understand. And that is to say that we typically have different emotional reactions from one eye to the other, not always, but sometimes. And so when a client says, well, of course, I'm upset because my partner did X, I might invite them to do this exercise. And and to say, so cover an eye and think about how upset you are and give it a number zero to 10. Yeah, it's an eight. You know, my partner did this terrible thing to me. Now cover the other eye. Huh. That's more like a two. What's the big deal? Hmm. Now, it doesn't always go that smoothly. And every now and then, you know, the eyes are the same. But 90 percent of the time are better. There's a differential. Hmm. Well, it's very hard to say that my partner is a real jerk with this eye, but is like okay in that eye. Like, how does that happen? How did reality change that much? So I call it the convince her because it's just a very visceral way to get in touch with the fact that no, this is a really uh, my reaction to. Yes, my partner did in fact do X and not Y, but. It's my reaction, my relationship to those behaviors that's really at, at play.
0: That's awesome. So sometimes, like an internal yeah, fact checker.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yes. So it. that can be that can somehow, you know, leapfrog some of the 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 tug of war about, you know, is this a is this cleaning up my side of the street or is no, I just gotta find a different partner.
0: Right. That's great. Cool. Being that clients will be able to to see, like with that convincer. Oh, OK. So I can see more. It's my side of the street. What what do clients need to do to heal?
1: So the theory of change, from my point of point, is is a three legged stool of getting it, doing it and feeling it differently. Now, the getting it part, that's that's kind of the thing that happens most quickly. That's because of the front part of our brain, that's where we learned the capital of Brazil. We can learn stuff. We can have insight. Um, in another language, it's called cognitive restructuring. It could be called psychoeducation. But I need to learn that there's you know, things that I'm doing, my partner's doing, that there's a model of fair play that I can learn and I can become acquainted with. So there were rules about conduct that I can learn, rules about exactly what we're talking about, about reactivity. Doing it differently means, oh, instead of engaging in a, in a fight, is there a way I can step back? listen more patiently, have more compassion and concern, um, or set good limits. However, the doing it, it hinges on the feeling it differently. So if my emotional brain isn't really resourced enough to do it differently, I will invariably fall back on old habits. So getting it, doing it, and feeling it differently is to me the essence of, of therapy. And the getting it part, that's the talk therapy that most of us are familiar with. Uh, The doing it, you know, sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy emphasizes doing it or relational therapies emphasize doing it. And the feeling it is really that bottom-up processing that we've been talking about is changing how my nervous system responds to stimuli so that I actually have my frontal lobes available to me to be more skillful. To have choices. Yes.
0: Yeah. So, so tell us why you like to teach EMDR therapists about this concept.
1: Well, I love to teach about this concept to me, you know, the human condition is endlessly fascinating. Um, I think that therapy is, is still a little more art than science. There's an art to being a There's an art. For sure. Yeah. Uh, timing, when to time or how to time my interventions, um, the how to be with people, you know, in, in in Counseling 101, it's, you know, lesson one, build rapport. Now, let's lesson two. Like, it's just overlooked. If It just comes naturally. It does not come naturally.
0: Right.
1: Our own attachment styles, our own lived history is going to influence how we engage with clients. so the good news is that there were rules and there were rules, even though it's an art, there are guide guide rails that kind of keep me understanding, like, what makes people tick? What is the source of their suffering? What are some of the channels through which they can heal? How can their relationships become more optimal, optimized for, you know, safety, responsibility, trust building? Um, And it's a a beautiful enterprise that is, to me, a, a rich combination of Theory. I have to understand the human condition. I need to know what the guide rails are for the client, for me. And technique, uh, like the the convincer I just showed you. And and, and a whole number of techniques that I've developed over the years to really augment that feeling it differently stage.
0: That's awesome. Well, I am so very excited to have gotten to hear from you today. And um, I feel like I could talk with you all day long and have a thousand questions and uh, I'm so grateful for for your willingness to meet with me and share mm. with share with our viewers a lot of these really important insights that, quite frankly, we probably should have learned in high school. And just, you know, coursework that says, here's how people work and here's how it might be a problematic if you don't understand. You know, wouldn't that have right. been nice? But, yeah. Um, more so than algebra, at least for me. and probably oh, yeah. Most.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I know
0: yeah, ways we could have spent our time more wisely. Uh, But anyways, I just uh, thank you again for coming and uh, being with us today. And I look forward to more time with you in the future. And we'll probably have to do this again sometime. So thank you again. And thank you, Kelly. uh, And thanks for your
1: generosity.
0: Yes, absolutely. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode, everybody. I really appreciate your tuning in and please make sure that you share this or subscribe if you want to see more content like this. And of course, uh, don't forget to lead with love. It'll never steer you wrong.